Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, 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 and welcome to the show. Happy birthday to the National Health Service. It is, of course, 75 years old. It was founded back in 1948, the post-war Labour government of Clement Attlee, the most transformative government in British history, which set about, of course, doing everything from nationalising a fifth of the economy uh, to restoring trade union rights, establishing a welfare state, um, rebuilding Britain after the calamity of the Nazi destruction of much of the mainland. Uh, a mass council house building program, and of course the foundation of a national health service free at the point of use, which would be funded by progressive taxation. This was a massive revolution. It meant that all of a sudden you were no longer threatened with being financially bankrupted because of ill health, that you were protected from cradle to grave. Since then, of course, millions and millions of babies have been born into the NHS. I think I'm the nearly 30th million baby who was born in the National Health Service. Uh, but as well as that, um, obviously, we've seen people's lives uh, saved, people looked after, often at their worst possible moments. But the National Health Service, on its, se- on its 75th birthday, is in a state of crisis, some fear terminal crisis. Whether it, its future survival, as we understand the National Health Service, well, there are massive question marks over it, to say the least. Now, if we look at where what the public think about the NHS, uh, more than anyone anything else, this is um, polling done for more in common, uh, the National Health Service makes Britons proud of their country more than anything else, 56%, followed by the countryside, which I thought was interesting. I suppose I like the countryside, the countryside in nature. Um, the monarchy, I'm afraid your boys took one hell of a beating. I mean, bear in mind, people could choose three, up to three, and the monarchy got 14%. Um, I was slightly bemused by the treatment or the reception of refugees and asylum seekers at number three, at 3%. I'm quite sure, given how refugees and asylum seekers are treated, that makes me massively proud. But then, anyway, the NHS, 56%. So obviously an absolutely phenomenal score and just shows the huge pride that people have in our National Health Service. However, satisfaction with the NHS in its current state is at abs- oh, that's well, it's, it's upside down. Uh, is is at absolutely catastrophic levels. Let's see if we can get um, uh, a different version of that. Um, the, uh, absolutely catastrophic levels, to say the least. Um, what we've seen is a plummet in satisfaction. If I've got the version here, um, uh, and here we go. We can't quite hide, have the set. Here we go. Fifty-one percent. Very or quite dissatisfied, 29% very satisfied. Um, over time, you've seen an absolute plummet under the Conservatives in satisfaction for the National um, Health Service. Um, in terms of waiting lists, uh, that's one of the main reasons, of course. Um, under Labour, and we'll talk, I will always talk about the failings of new Labour, but 
not least creeping privatization, PFI. Um, but nonetheless, waiting lists massively fell under Labour. That was testament to public investment, public spending. Under the Conservatives, uh, as uh, as we saw the, the, the longest, sorry, the worst squeeze in funding of the NHS as a proportion of the economy since it was founded, um, waiting lists have massively, drastically uh, soared. Um, that's just one measure. We could talk, of course, about the collapse in real terms pay. Um, uh, nurses, about five grand since 2010 in real terms. Paramedics, by about six and a half uh, thousand pounds. Um, partly linked to that, a crisis of retention um, and recruitment. About 10% of nursing vacancies unfilled. Um, the, the NHS, you know, we can see oh, since in the last two, three years, under massive crisis. It was always going to face enormous pain because of the pandemic, but it was so woefully exposed to what happened um, because of the state it had been left in by conservative rule. So we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, if you're watching live, do press like and subscribe. And as ever, support us on patreon.com for slash Jose's for or use super chats, which... Um, which we will thank everyone at the end, as we always do, and put questions to our esteemed guests. Um, now, we're very lucky to have Jamie Hale to begin. Jamie Hale is the CEO of Pathfinders Neuromuscular Alliance, uh, which is an organisation uh, led by disabled people. Um, Jamie, I just want to start just to talk about your experience with the NHS. You're someone with a profound physical ex impairment. Can you just explain the role the National Health Services had in your life and the importance it's had in your life? I suppose from birth onwards, I've been really thankful to the NHS for providing various combinations of life-saving and life-sustaining treatment. And over the years, as my condition has progressed, I've become more reliant on the NHS to fund what I need, which now includes a care package that means round the clock I have a highly trained staff member with me who can provide me with all the support I need and manage my condition. Now, on the positive side, this has meant that I have spent several years with far reduced hospitalizations, far reduced infections, far reduced other complications. On the more challenging side, I'm not particularly cost effective. And that's why I'm really glad that we've got an NHS because in theory, at least, I don't have to think about my life as cost effective and in theory, at least, you're not faced by a health system saying we can't afford to treat you. Now, to some extent, that happens in practice. People's care packages get cut on cost effectiveness grounds or they experience, as I did, the um, suggestion that it would be a lot cheaper for me to live in a care home rather than in my own home with my wife and my dog. But nonetheless, the idea of universal health care and the dream of the NHS that I, I hold on to it is of a service where that never happens. It is of a service where everybody receives both the preventative care and the treatment they need to remain as healthy as possible without having to worry about the cost. Have you seen yourself, I mean, just your own, say, the last few years, have you noticed the impact of the crisis in the NHS in your own life? Absolutely. I've seen waiting lists get longer and longer. I've experienced these waiting lists getting longer. I sometimes wait 18 months for a cardiology follow-up. I have referrals that are languishing in the depths. I've 
was originally told a year ago that I would probably be having an operation in the next two or three months that I am still waiting to have. And this isn't how the NHS used to be. I remember a time when my GP would refer me and maybe four weeks later I'd be seen at the hospital. I'd get the letter a week or two after that rather than maybe waiting a couple of months for the letter. And when I needed any kind of urgent treatment, I would go to A&D and I'd be seen quickly. And the increase in A&D waiting times and the decrease in staffing is really concerning to people who have more complex conditions. For, I suppose, myself, for many of the members at Pathfinders, where we are at risk of chest infections getting incredibly serious incredibly quickly due to reduced lung function, you rely on turning up at a hospital and not only being treated quickly based on your presenting symptoms, but being able to see a clinician quickly who can assess that even if you're not too badly off at that moment, the risk of a rapid decline is enough that it needs to be prioritised, you need to be seen, you need to be on the antibiotics. Whereas now with increasingly stretched staff in hospitals and longer waiting times in A&D, there's the concern of will you get seen at the point you need to by a staff member who has the time to understand your condition, your medical history and treat you thoroughly. And I know that no doctor ever wants to be giving a patient less time, less care, less focus than that patient needs. And the fact that I think sometimes in pressured hospital environments, patients and especially those with the more complex conditions don't receive the care that we need. That's because there are overstretched staff on understaffed wards and in understaffed departments doing the best they can to firefight at every angle and who just don't necessarily have the time, the resources or the institutional support to really give every patient what they need one by one. I mean, in terms of managed decline, I know this is something you very much think or feel and from own lived experience that the NHS has been put through. Just just flesh out managed decline. What are we, what are we talking about in, in, in practical terms? I suppose from my perspective, the idea of a managed decline is that the service that the NHS provides is being run down. The result of this is to increase public discontent with that service, push people to seek private tests, appointments and treatment because the NHS isn't able to see them in a timely fashion and then slowly use this to argue against the existence of the NHS or for increased costings. And we're already seeing the rise in a parallel health system where I and many people I, I know have resorted to seeking private treatment for things because the NHS waiting lists are just so unsustainable. And the more that people do that, the less they're going to understand the value that the NHS has. And the more we have a parallel system where the people that can afford to and or can't afford not to are paying to go privately and the NHS is deteriorating as more and more staff go to work in the private rather than public sector with better paying conditions, then the understaffing gets worse, the funding to the NHS gets cut increasingly, and we end up in a situation where it becomes a health service that people use as a very last resort rather than a health service we should all be proud of. I mean, is your fear under, I mean, under the Conservatives, we can see the direction, we can see what the NHS looks like under the Conservatives. What, what's your take on where Labour are currently positioning themselves? I think 
I would really like to see a focus on how the NHS is going to be funded into the future from Labour beyond the idea of a Labour government. Because as we've seen, you can make huge strides under under new Labour and then it can all be wiped away under the Conservatives. So in terms of where we're taking the NHS, I think it's also about looking at the idea that we are actually in a golden age of sort of health technology development and pharmaceutical development that we should be looking at how things like artificial intelligence can really be harnessed to improve medicine to make it more efficient we're seeing increasingly personalized medicine and as that moves into preventative as well as treatment then that's going to offer a real opportunity to cut costs but i think there needs to be a sustained nhs investment in being at the cutting edge of developing new health technologies and indeed developing new pharmaceuticals rather than being in a position where we're continually dependent on the private sector to provide these to the NHS, including when huge amounts of national funding has gone into the development. I'm just finding what's what's your ask of, of, of people, I guess, in terms of what people can do to, given the NHS to, is in an existential crisis and you've painted that in pretty stark colours. What's your kind of, you know, what, what do you think people who just feel they're, they're worried, they're scared like yourself? What What can people do, do you think? I think the problem with a managed decline is that it's done carefully so there isn't ever a crunch point where people suddenly sit and think, hang on, something has gone really badly wrong. It's just a constant drip of negative news, a drip of, you know, waiting oh, lists. Hold on, I think we've lost... Hold on, Jamie, I'm not sure I can hear you for some... Unless that's just my computer. Let me just double check. Jamie, can you hear me okay? Yep, I can hear you fine. You can hear me. Interesting. Just... Uh, for some reason, just lost... Oh, hold on. I think that was me, Jamie. There's something going wrong with my computer. You just froze. Can you can you speak again? Um, yeah, can you hear absolutely me now? fine. Sorry about that. Yeah, I think that was actually a slight hardware problem on my, my, my side. Go for it. Sorry, carry on, Jamie. You and full flow. I think I was saying that the problem with the managed decline is that there never reaches a point where the population is so horrified by what's happened that there's a real coalescing around the importance of the NHS to our future because every time it's just another small drip of bad news rather than an understanding of the scale of the problem and I think that there's something about campaigning groups really needing to drill down into message development that says yeah this is an existential crisis for the NHS without radical change we will see the Conservative government potentially bringing in a system of charging for even more NHS care than is already charged for. And I say even more because things like dentistry are private, opticians are private, there's a prescription payment cost. If you happen to have your needs judged as social care rather than health care, which is a very fine divide, then you have to pay towards those costs. But I think there needs to be something in which everyone kind of sits up and takes notice. And there needs to be more pressure on the Conservative Party. I don't quite understand why they have thought that managed decline is a sensible way forward when you consider that Conservative voters tend to be older and that older people tend to be more dependent on the NHS overall. So I think there's a lot about the messaging towards older people who might previously have skewed Conservative that the NHS has been there for their, potentially for their entire lives. And do they want to see it for their grandchildren? And I think maybe that's the message we need to be taking forward, 
that we've all had the NHS or we've almost all had the NHS for our whole lives and do we want there to be an NHS for future generations? I can see that you're speaking, but I can't hear you. This may be me. Um, I think I can, it, you. you can hear me now. Yeah, I think that was my problem. My computer, my computer seems to have had, maybe it's the private healthcare lobby has invaded my hardware in an effort to, to silence us both. But we managed to get through it. Um, Jamie, thank you so so much. Really, really appreciate it. And uh, that was that was very eloquent and to the point. And sorry for the slight technical problems there. It's one of those days, as it turns out. But we got through it. We persevered. Um, and do do follow Jamie Hell's uh, work and support. Um, as I said, his the Pathfinders Neuromuscular um, Alliance. But yeah, cheers, Jamie. And uh, I'll speak to you soon. Hopefully, with fewer hardware problems. Thank you so much. Take care now. See you. Bye. Bye. Uh, see, see, great stuff from Jamie there. Uh, as someone says in the comments, sort your tech out, Owen. It's reasonable. We don't normally have these problems, but, you know, it's good to keep me on my toes. Um, uh, if you're watching live, or not live, actually, it doesn't really matter. Just hit like and do subscribe. Um, we did stop doing these live shows, as you know, um, for various reasons. And then I struggled to find when I could do the right slot because Navarra do theirs at 6 um, every day, and I don't want to clash with them. I can't really just do a show at 8 p.m. It's just going to get a bit silly, isn't it? So we are toying with five at the moment. We've been doing that for the last three weeks, I think. But obviously, we've been doing these live, we've been doing these videos, as in non-live videos, every day, which we're going to keep on doing. And um, but yes, we restarted the live show because you, I got people got angry about it, and now look at me, I do them, and then I can't even get my hardware to work. So what's the honestly? This country. Anyway, uh, yeah, do press like. And I'm now going to bring in the brilliant um, Andrew Myerson, who's an A&E doctor in East London. But I would say, Andrew, you've got a very interesting perspective because you have worked in healthcare in the United States as well as Britain. So I'm just wondering, just to begin with, thanks for joining us, obviously, as ever. Um, thanks so much uh, for having me. No, it's a big, big honour to have your experience. Yeah, just, I mean, maybe, I, I guess it's always interesting, I always think, talking to... Uh, you know, someone who's worked in US healthcare about how much maybe of a salutary warning that is. So I think maybe from that perspective, could you just kind of spell out, you know, what US healthcare means vis-a-vis -vis even our crisis-stricken national health service at the moment? Yeah. yeah thank you for, for having me. Um, you know, I, 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 I came here about eight years ago to, uh, to study medicine uh, and I stayed to work in the NHS because I, I love it and I value it. Um, uh, to an extent that a lot of people just don't understand. Uh, but when you grow up in the States, um, uh, in a, you know, I, I grew up in a healthcare family. My, my father was a, a doctor. My uh, mother was a speech pathologist. My brother, an EMT. My sister ran a palliative care department. My, uh, my one aunt is, uh, was a matron. Another uncle was, ran a radiology department. And another uncle was a Burns nurse. Um, and, you know, so I have been around the delivery of healthcare and uh, for for quite a while throughout my entire life. Um, fortunate to have you know good health insurance uh, myself, but I've seen family and friends uh, just you know devastated financially because of American healthcare bills. 
You know, we have, you know, uh, 500,000 Americans declaring bankruptcy every year because of these terrible medical bills. And, you know, we have about 30 million people who have no health insurance at all. And another 50 million who have, you know, a, a catastrophic insurance or, you know, uh, that we say that they're underinsured, uh, that, you know, in the event that they need health care, they're not be able, they're not <laughs> able to, to, to get it uh, to an adequate uh, 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 degree. And so if you, you know, look at the horrors of American healthcare and seeing them and, you know, you know, my, uh, you know, a family member being charged $15,000 to, uh, to, to, to see a, uh, to, to be taken to, to, to hospital uh, in an ambulance um, or people that, you know, when they're in a catastrophic accident, you know, telling people not to call uh, 911 because, you know, they just can't afford to go to the hospital. Um, that is in the wealthiest country on the planet. It is barbaric. And, you know, it is among the wealthiest countries in the, in the world. We have, you know, the, the U.S. has the worst ranked uh, healthcare system. Um, we waste enormous amounts of money. Uh, you know, we spend double the amount per person that, uh, that the NHS does. And, you know, the, and 75 years ago, after World War II, you guys made the, you know, brilliant revolutionary decision, as you mentioned earlier in the program, uh, to, to implement a healthcare system like this. Uh, that was free at the point of use, that, that, that guaranteed high quality care, whether you were a prince or a pauper. And, and it transformed uh, uh, the health and wealth of this country for generations to come. And the proof is just, you know, look, 10 years ago, uh, the NHS was ranked the number one healthcare system on the planet. You know, the Commonwealth Fund said that you guys were the absolute best uh, uh, model of healthcare delivery anywhere in the world, um, beating every other, you know, hybrid model from, from Europe, uh, uh, and, and certainly the privatized model from, from the United States. And so, you know, when I came here, when I, when I, when I came to the UK from the, you know, the, the, you know, the horrors of American healthcare, I feel like I came to the promised land of healthcare. But then, you know, as I've been training over the last eight years and, you know, I became a doctor in 2019, right before the pandemic and, uh, been working in A&E pretty much since, um, I have seen a formerly great health system be driven into the ground. Uh, by policy decisions from uh, from successive conservative governments who have no interest in uh, in improving the health care of, uh, of 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 patients, um, no interest in, in in supporting patient care, no interest in supporting staff, and you know they have you know completely run down the system, underfunded it, understaffed it, undermined it, and you know to the point now where you know you know ten years ago we were the best healthcare system on the planet here in the UK, uh, and now we're performing among the worst in Europe. Um, so it's it's uh, it's it's horrifying to see this, and it is heartbreaking to care for patients in this context because, as Jamie was saying, it's it is it's it's really really difficult for patients out there right now, and you know we feel for them uh, because they should not be suffering on the waiting lists, uh, uh, to, you know that that are like this. It's 7.4 million people, the longest in NHS history. Um, this is the sixth wealthiest country on the planet. You know we should be doing hell of a lot better. I mean, you know, it was quite striking that Sajid Javid, um, who used to be the health secretary under the Conservatives, was saying that, um, you know, the NHS um, in its current form isn't working and, and, and politicians from both sides think that. And it just came across to me, we we're talking about these testers and the Jeremy Vine show, it just cropped up, kind of the cheek of being a, the Conservatives in power for 13 years, underfunding and under-resourcing and fragmenting the NHS and then going... Guys, this model's not working anymore, is it? Yeah, what happened? Shocking. Yeah. I mean, yeah. what's your thought? Just, I mean, what's your thought just in terms of that? I mean, is that, is that kind of a real sense there that you end up with a Tory government, they wreck the NHS, yeah. and then they use that as evidence the NHS model doesn't work, and therefore 
we have to start privatizing and charging people. Yeah, these are people with no credibility at all. Um, they inherited the number one healthcare system on the planet, and then look what they've done to it. You know, we have 7.4 million people waiting on the longest waiting list in NHS history. Patients are waiting longer to see their GP, to be seen in A&E, to get their cancer care, uh, to get outpatient care um, than ever before. And, and you know, and, and, you know to, 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 to hear uh, Sajid Javid make comments like that and to hear, uh, uh, you know, uh, that, that uh, Steve Barclay um, saying that we need to work harder in order to deserve a pay rise or that, you know, that, that, uh, that all of the problems are just suddenly just magically appeared or they blame the pandemic. Our waiting lists were nearing 5 million before the pandemic even started. Um, that, that is their excuse that they, they love, to, uh, that they love to, 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 um, to talk about. But, it, you, know, they were, you know, for the last 10 years, they have done enormous damage to the system. Um, uh, you know, that, that, that rises to the level of criminal grade neglect in my book. You know, because, you know, if you have the most efficient healthcare system on the planet 10 years ago and you underfund it by 40 billion pounds a year, that's 400 billion over the last decade uh, uh, compared to, you know, what uh, uh, Germany and France have spent in their health systems. And if you remove, you know, a, a, an enormous number of hospitals, of A&E departments, if you allow the staff crisis to, uh, to, to, to grow, you know, you know, well beyond it was something like 130,000 uh, um, uh, uh, people now. And, you know, and even more in social care uh, and then make promises that we are going to fix social care, that they're going to, to solve this problem of, you know, of, of you know, bed blocking, they call it, um, of patients in, in the hospital unable to be discharged into social care. They've made promises year on year, every single year. And, and we haven't hit A&E targets. We haven't hit cancer targets, you know, since 2015. Um, they have overseen the greatest assault on the NHS in its 75 year history, and they have absolutely no credibility left. And, you know, and, and, and anybody who cares about the NHS, who values it, you know, you know, shouldn't believe a word that they say. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Well, let's... Let's hear from them, shall we? I'm sorry to do mm. this to all of us, including yourself, but let's hear from Maria Caulfield being asked about waiting lists. Let's just see how far through this interview we can 
we can bear, then I want to see your reaction. Virtually eliminating the, the two-year wait. Up. This number is 7.4 million. But that's the number of people, and that probably will go up higher because we're offering more procedures. So it's going to go up even higher. So what I'm saying is, but the length of time people are waiting for their procedures is actually going down, and that's what matters to patients. So what's it going to go up to? So, but what it's going to go down to so is that we've got to... You said it's going to go higher, so what's it going to go so up, we're going, up to? So we've got the two-year waits down, we've got the 18-month waits down, and we're now working on those waiting uh, for uh, a year um, uh, to try and get those waits down further. In... Wales, where Labour run the NHS, there's thousands I'm of people... I'm talking about that, talking about that massive number, and well, you I said it's, it's going to go higher, for... so I'm asking you, so reasonable question, how much higher is it going to go? I think it's important for people in Wales to know that they're still waiting two years because the, the same interventions haven't been put in in Wales. Uh, there will always be people being added to the waiting list because we're introducing more procedures, we're able so to So it's never more... going to come below 7.4 million? I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that there will always be people waiting... Kind of enough. I've kind of had enough of that. Um, what's your what's your just take on that though? In terms of us saying, well, actually, things are going to get higher, but that you know, if added all these extra things. That's why do, do, we're just adding so many things to the NHS. Uh, but in terms of just you know where things are heading it's, and, and her defence, I mean, you could see how much they were struggling to answer that question uh, because there is no you know reasonable answer there. The waiting lists are going to grow and grow and grow because they don't have a plan. Uh, to 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 solve this the the staff hemorrhage that we are experiencing right now, they don't have a plan to um to address you know the the you know the four hundred billion pounds that have been pulled out of the out of the system over the last over the last decade, and you know as as long as as long as they are not discussing new funding for the NHS, as long as you know labor is not discussing new funding for the NHS, uh, it's you know any plans that they have it will remain you know a pipe dream. Um, and just, you know, empty uh, promises um, uh, from, you know, from people in government to the public that the public should not trust. Um, these are not people who have their best interests at heart. Uh, and uh, and it's, 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 uh, it, it is such a shame to, to see people who have no authentic interest in, 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 in delivering high quality patient care in this, you know, in this, in this, in this uh, public system. It's 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 so heartbreaking to see them run the NHS like this uh, when we know that, you know, that there are, you know, the, 10 years ago we were running so well. We still have a lot of things that we need to work on, of course, uh, but it's just it's heartbreaking what they've done to the system. And, you know, and if unless they have a plan for funding, unless they have a plan for staff retention uh, uh, and and to, to, to sort out excess hospital beds and and to, to finally have the courage to, to, you know, to figure out what we're going to do about social care, then then, you know, uh, nobody can trust their plans. You, you mentioned um, Labour, actually, and David Bowater has said here, what are your thoughts on Labour's position on the NHS? Also, I'd like to thank you for coming here to be a doctor in the NHS, especially with how tough things are now, you're a hero. But let's just see, uh, I just, with that in mind, just we've got a clip here from Wes Treating, who is the Shadow Secretary for Health and Social Care. Let's just see. That's why Labour said very clearly, and not uncontroversially, that we would buy some of that spare capacity in the private sector so that people on lower incomes can get it on NHS terms free at the point of use. So, yeah, I mean, they're talking about, I mean, Tony Blair's ca calling for increased private sector involvement in the National Health Service. Um, what's your take on that? And also um, the point about NHS, fund, what, that Labour's position on funding of the National Health Service? So from what I understand about the, their position, uh, you know, they, they don't want to address any, you know, a, a, any, any, any new funding. Uh, they, don't, they don't want to, to add any new funding, but they want to, you know, to, to, to claw some of it back from, you know, non-DOM status. 
I think that's a good idea for, you know, for to, to get some of it back. Uh, but, you know, there is just a, you know, we need to tax the wealthy, tax the super rich, um, a one to 2% tax on top of, you know, it's not going to, you know, uh, wealth tax is not, I called a, you know, an NHS, you know, a, a solidarity tax. Um, because, you know, everybody, you know, if, if a wealthy person has a heart attack in the street or a poor person, we need to send an ambulance to them quickly. We need to treat them, you know, very rapidly in an NHS hospital where we have the capacity and the experience and the expertise to be able to do that. Um, and that cannot be done in the private sector. The private sector is, is relatively small in this country. Um, there is not some magical excess capacity that we have that is going to, you know, dramatically turn things around. This, this, this comes across a lot of people working in the NHS. You know, we'll just see this as, you know, public funds being um, being, being, being drawn out of the NHS into, to, into to, you know, to the pockets of, you know, wealthy shareholders of these companies, uh, you know, where they skim off 20 percent of, you know, of, of money that you know, will be saved, that could be invested back in the health service, uh, that could be, you know, saved for training, that can improve patient care. Uh, but uh, that is not what they want to do. They want to prop up the, the, the private healthcare sector because they, they see it as, you know, you know, similar to the, to the American economy. An enormous percentage of the American economy um, is, uh, is, is in healthcare spending. And, you know, and that, that help, that's good for a lot of people, but it's terrible for patients. And so what they are doing is not going to help patients. It's not going to improve, uh, dramatically improve waiting lists. There are major problems within the NHS um, from funding, staff, social care, beds that need to be sorted first without them stealing more of our private fund, more of our public funds and pushing into, into private health care. Um, it's just, I mean, you see the proliferation of private health care right now in this country. And this is all by design, you, you know, you know it, it, it run down the system, underfund it, under-resource it, uh, and, you know, get the waiting lists up to, up to 7.4 million people. Um, get satisfaction lower, and then and then say, you know what, you know, and, and they're hold, it's holding the public hostage in this way, um, saying that you know if you want care, then you know go and register with a with a, a private GP. Um, it won't cost that much, but of course it will. It absolutely will, and you know that's why you're going to see the introduction of medical debt in this country. Uh, and you know, emblematic of all of this, you know, the 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 Cleveland Clinic, you know, major, you know, a, a huge hospital in uh, in Cleveland, the United States. Um, opened up a, a brand new hospital right next to Buckingham Palace that, you know, that says everything we need to know about, you know, the, the, the links between the wealthy in this country and, and private health care. And, uh, and, you know, th that they have that, you know, while, while the rest of us suffer on the longest waiting list in the NHS history, I think that's just plain wrong. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and that's why, that's why we feel the need to, to speak up about it, because, you know, patients deserve a hell of a lot better than what they're getting right now. And that's just the, the, the final point I was going to ask you in terms of, you know, we sometimes talk about the risk of the NHS collapsing, but it doesn't really work. It's not like suddenly the NHS just disappears. There's no NHS. So there's kind of right. when people use that terminology, it's kind of, you know, may, maybe not, not so helpful. But what do you actually think, where, how much, because people look at how it can see how bad things are. You're still going to wait until mm. you can see how bad things are. You know, everyone yeah. knows someone affected in some way by the NHS crisis realistically, or the vast yeah. majority of people. So people are aware even if they're not directly involved. But how much worse can things actually get? What are we actually talking about in terms of the lived consequences that people will see happening to them that aren't even happening now but could be happening in the not-too-distant future? Yeah, oh, and that's a great question. Um, the, you know, you look at, you look at let's, let's, let's start with 10 years ago. 10 years ago, patients were able to see their GP in, you know, 24, hour, 24 to 48 hours. It's now waiting two weeks. You know, patients 10 years ago could see, could go into A&E and be seen in under four hours. Um, uh, and now, you know, their waiting times are up to 15 hours in some places. 
um, or, you know, the, the cancer care, you know, you would get your, your cancer referral within two weeks, you know, 10 years ago, and now it's over, you know, it could be over two months. All of that is going to get worse. The waiting lists are going to grow. So let's say they don't have a plan for funding. Let's say they don't have a, an adequate plan for staffing because this, this plan that they just released is very much not, it's very much inadequate. Um, then what's going to happen is that it will take, you know, it, it could take, you know, many weeks, a month to see your GP. It could take, you know, uh, uh, you know, three months or more to see your, to, 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 to see a cancer specialist. Um, you could be waiting 24 hours in A&E to be seen. Uh, uh, you could, you know, uh, and, and, and the waiting lists, you know, balloon to, you know, over 10 million people. And so, you know, it, this is, it, it's, is the, it, it only feeds the, the, the creation of a two-tier healthcare system where the, the wealthy have access to high-quality, rapid care, um, the type of care that every single person deserves, the type of care that NHS patients were receiving 10 years ago, um, while, you know, working people are suffering on the longest waiting list in NHS history. And those two levels of care in the, in, in the sixth wealthiest country on the planet, with a great history of de healthcare delivery uh, 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 you know, at a world-class standard, that is unacceptable. And it, it, you know, it is criminal grade neglect on the part of this government that they have pushed the, the, you know, the, the, you know, patients in this direction, pushed staff in this direction, you know, that, you know, people, people are, are, are you know, we hear about the, the, the junior doctor strikes that are coming up um, again. Um, unfortunately, five days in July, you know, our consultants are, are, are going to be striking for a couple of days after that. Nobody wants to do this. Nobody wants to, to, to be on strike, but you know, when you have junior doctors that are making 14 pounds an hour out of medical school, um, being, you know, working night shifts, late shifts, um, uh, you know, unable to see family and friends, unable to have a social life, um, you know, unable to, to, to have a meaningful quality of life and unable to pay our student loans back, um, being assaulted by patients, you know, higher risk of catching diseases because we work in a dangerous environment. Um, and then, you know, seeing, you know, uh, alarming numbers of staff suicides. It is, it's, it's become a horrific place to work uh, for so many people in so many different hospitals around the country. And, and, you know, and then having a horrific place to work, but then also seeing the care that, that, that is being delivered to patients or the lack of care that's being delivered to patients, then it is absolutely heartbreaking. And so it's no wonder that so many of our colleagues are leaving the profession in record numbers. And so, you know, Rishi Sunak is doing a fantastic job of, of, of recruiting, you know, doctors for the Australian uh, health service and for New Zealand and for Canada, uh, but doing a terrible job of trying to retain us. And it, it ends up costing the taxpayer here massive amounts of money. You want to spend, you know, it's expensive to train a doctor, train a nurse, train other healthcare staff. And what we're doing is we're training these people and then allowing them to leave. It's, you know, and then, you know, any, any mechanism they have for, um, for bringing in new staff, you know, and turning the taps on to bring more staff in, it's just being lost because there's no plug in the bottom of the tub. And so, you know, and, and patients are suffering as a consequence of this, and it will absolutely continue and absolutely get worse, you know, it provided, you know, as long as this government has no plan for, for, for funding, no plan for staff, no plan for beds, no plan for social care. Andrew, pretty gruesome stuff, I'm not going to lie. Um, not the cheeriest 75th birthday for our National Health Service. Um, yeah. Um, it feels kind of grim even to talk about celebrating the NHS's 75th birthday in the current context. And I think you've really vividly just painted a gruesome picture of just how existential this crisis is for the National Health Service. Um, yeah. So thank you as ever, because I've, I've seen your videos before, always very eloquent and 
clear and accessible about what is a very bleak and ever worsening crisis. But honestly, really, really appreciate Andrew. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Sean. Appreciate it. Take care. Cheers. Great stuff from Andrew, though. Very bleak. And that's just the honest picture, isn't it? Um, Tad Campwell says, it sounds like the NHS will need to be rebuilt from almost the ground up by the time a socialist government comes into power. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's part of the problem, isn't it? The You know, back in 2012, the Health and Social Care Act introduced by Andrew Warnsley, uh, someone who'd received health um, funding from private healthcare for his constituency office or for CEO of a private healthcare company. Um, the Health and Social Care Act was three times longer than the legislation which established the National Health Service back 75 years ago. Um, and it fragmented the systems. It wasn't just, you know, what we've seen is underfunding and under David Cameron. I was on yesterday actually with, um, uh, I've forgotten her name. She is the former uh, editor of the Evening Standard and David Cameron's sister-in-law. Um, that's the British media, guys. Um, and anyway, um, yeah, well, you know, the point, one of the points I was making is, is the, uh, under David Cameron and George Osborne, it's suffered the longest squeeze in funding as a proportion of the National Health Service since it was founded. You, you also get the cuts to social care, don't you? You get an aging population. So you get more pressures on an NHS. So when the Tory said, well, we increased spending still, that is, gaslighting isn't it really because what they're doing there is a increasing it less than any government ever had since it was founded but b actually when you take into account popular oh that's it population growth as well per person funding went down and so you know at the same time real terms paid for frontline staff went down um and you then get a crisis in retention and recruitment and that means existing staff have to work harder. They have more pressures put on them and their morale falls. I mean, it is a multi-pronged assault. Fragmentation, privatization, under-resourcing, underfunding, underpaid. That's what we're talking about with our National Health Service. So yes, Tad Campbell, I think you're absolutely right in terms of what we're talking about here. Um, and the, the thing is, you know, the reason they hate the, the, the NHS, the British rights, is it is an embarrassing repudiation of their entire fundamental ideology, isn't it? Their fundamental ideology is let the market do what it wants. The market, the laws of the market will decide everything. And that's how you get innovation and prosperity. Just let the market run riot. The more you let the market run riot, the better. Because, you know, it will be free from the constraints of the state. And then the NHS is an example of healthcare being provided, not for the profit motive, but for public need. And it's provided under public ownership. And people love it. They love the whole idea of it. It becomes, as former Tory Chancellor Nigel Lawson called it, the closest the English have to a religion. And that's, that was his own words. Um, and they hated that. They hated the fact that people were so fundamentally attached to an institution which put public need ahead of profit and worked. And what they want to do is get rid of it for that reason, don't they? That's one of the reasons, as well as it being a profitable cash cow for many of the people who fund them. And the private healthcare companies, some Tory politicians directly go and work for, and new Labour politicians, by the way, as they will under a government. I bet you now, there'll be uh, 
ministers in a Labour government which will end up working for private healthcare companies. A revolving door, that's what it's called. Um, but that's the issue. That's, I think, so fundamental to what we're talking about. But yes, great stuff, Tad. Um, Roxanne Johnson, even if the Tories' NHS privatisation wet dream comes true, they'll still need doctors and nurses left in the country to run the healthcare system. I guess that's one way to decrease net migration. Well, I mean, you know, as as I was just the, the one of the points there made was you get, um, you know, record numbers of doctors are going to Australia. British doctors are going to Australia. Um, the the Australian healthcare system is is aggressively recruiting from here, knowing how demoralised and underpaid and undervalued people are. That's what's happened. Um, so you know, yeah. <laughs> Those net migration figures will go down because so many British, uh, or well, not just British uh, born, but also people from all over the world, they'll just be like, nah, don't think so, guys. Not working for that. FSM is the dog. They pick on Wales. They've cut funding. Really important point because people go on about, they, they try and use the NHS in Wales as a get-out-of-jail card. And the obviously, you know, the Welsh government is not provided with, obviously, sufficient funding from the Conservative government. That's been a long-running problem. Um, so that's a very important point. Um, just finally, I didn't. What, I, what I'm going to try and do is do something on what's going on in Palestine at the moment because of the Israeli assault on Janine, which has been itself condemned by the United Nations um, as illegal. Um, you know the degeneration there in terms of you know in terms of the, the the horror that has been inflicted on the Palestinian people by a state which has been correctly described by Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch and the Israeli human rights organization Betzalem as an apartheid state, which is how we should describe it, which is conducting an illegal as well as unjust um, occupation, depriving the Palestinians of their right to national self-determination and being backed and funded and, and um, armed by Western powers, including our own, as they um, wage this relentless, vicious war on the Palestinian people. And so I'm going to try and do something on that, maybe interview someone, um, a Palestinian um, politician or activist to talk about what's going on. So bear with me on that one. Um, and um, yes, I'm going to go now and do some work. But um, oh, yeah, maybe a little update. Uh, so on my I think I've told you periodically about the alternative and how we build it, which is a book um, I've uh, been working on for too long. <laughs> um, uh, but I'm meeting my editor and my agent next week to do because uh, I've submitted the whole proposal. So now we have, we're going to come up with a plan for editing and publishing it. With It's being published by Penguin, but it's long overdue. But we're going to get there. And then I'm going to write another book. I've got some, I've got an idea for another book, um, which. I uh, will actually might share with you because I'd like to get some ideas and thoughts from you, actually. Um, so that's what I'm going to do. Um, and we're going to interview various people. So when I do an interview, I'm going to get in touch with them. Um, is Gabor Mate, who is a Canadian physician, um, an expert on things like addiction. One of the reasons I'm interested in talking to him is I don't want to keep, I'm not, this isn't something I'm going to keep going on about, by the way. Um, uh, but, but I did, so I, I'm only saying it's the first time I've spoken about this because I'm doing a live thing here because I got diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder um, re very recently. So I did a thing, a video about it, and I was really, I have to say, I do 
sometimes realize just how privileged I am just because it's various episodes like when my dad died and I did all talking about like bereavement or whatever. And, and I got loads of people responding with their stories and it's just, I learned so much. And that was the same with the ADHD. I had so many people with ADHD who got in touch with me and I learned just a huge amount because just being diagnosed with ADHD doesn't mean I know anything or, you know, I only know a certain amount, but I've learned a huge amount, including about problems with people being able to get linked to the NHS uh, waiting lists, NHS waiting lists for ADHD are absolutely ob- obscene. Can be years, and um, but I want to talk to Gavin Matte about it anyway because he has written a book about it um, and other stuff. So I'm very interested in that. Um, and yeah, so anyway, we've got various interviews that we're going to do. Um, cool, and we're going to keep doing these Wednesday at five o'clock. I know it's just bedding in at the moment because we stopped doing live shows, and I kept messing about with just doing random shows on random days at random times. Sorry, uh, slightly chaotic life. Um, um, but we move. Um, I, I'm going to be on Good Morning Britain again tomorrow. I was on earlier this week, and I'm going to be uh, doing, if anyone gets up at 6.30, I'll be on at 6.30 doing the papers with Quentin Letts. Um, we don't agree on a lot, as you probably would expect and hope and know. Um, yeah, anyway. So, uh, yeah, if you're around. And, um I will see. My, I need to work on my sign don't I? I just kind of meander. <laughs> this is, I think, an insight into how my head generally works. Um, anyway, uh, uh, thanks everyone. Um, happy birthday to our NHS, and let's keep fighting to save it from oblivion. Um, lots of love, and I will see you all very soon. <laughs>